Lord, your text tells us this morning that you've revealed yourself to us. You've shown yourself to us. This comes from you. It's about you. And and as we uh, hear it, we're called to receive it. We're called to keep it. To believe it. And that if we hear it and then keep it and believe it, you call us blessed. But we know that this is only possible by your spirit. So, Spirit of God, be active that we might hear and believe. That we might hear and receive. That we might hear and keep these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine with me this morning having some kind of a crucial message that you need to, you feel compelled to communicate to someone that you love or a group of people that you deeply care about, your family or loved ones, Um, A message that if believed and lived according to would be for their ultimate good. It would assure their ultimate good. And a message that could save them from some impending doom that's certain to overtake them if they do not listen as it presses in around them. Now imagine you share that. You share that message with that loved one. Whether in a letter or whether in some kind of a verbal warning of proclamation... And then you watch as that message is ripped from its context or ascribe some new meaning that you never intended to ascribe it to it. Other parts where you were hoping to uh, be taken a certain way are taken a different way, right? So imagine them thinking parts where you were attempting to be obviously sarcastic to use hyperbole, they took you very literally. Other parts where you were hoping to be taken seriously we're seen as just kind of joking around. Imagine then the helplessness that kind of sets in as you're trying to communicate this. It almost feels like one of those dreams where you're screaming, but nobody can hear you. And as you're doing your best to communicate, a good part of that responsibility has to fall with the hearers because a part of what you might feel in the example that I'm giving you is the sense that those hearing aren't being very, in, aren't being very charitable with their interpretations of you. They're not treating you as they would want someone to treat them when they're communicating to others. They're not trying to discover what you are trying to communicate, but rather constructing something new with it or um, trying to make it more comfortable for their own context. This is part of the reason that study and understanding of genre for the Christian life in Scripture is so important. Here in Revelation, we have a written message by an original author an original audience. In that message, we have an intended meaning. The author has something he wishes to communicate to his hearers, you guys. And as we read this book together, we'll find the message itself is crucial. It's life or death. You know, one of the characteristics of Revelation is that whereas other passages have some gray area related to certain things, you know, you get into certain parts of the Bible, it's like, you know, Abraham is called you know, righteous to some extent, and then we see failure after failure, right? And so it's like, we come to see what that means and how it works, but, but it's not super clear always. It's not just like black and white. And yet in Revelation, we see black and white. We see you're in, you're out. You hear and you believe, or you don't. It's life or death. 
And if it's believed or lived according to, the message will assure the good of its hearers and save them from, from destruction. And yet, it's easy to misunderstand it because it's a genre of literature that's completely foreign to the vast majority of 21st century people. It's apocalyptic literature. So, in the Bible, we have all kinds of genre, right? So we spent the last year in Old Testament narrative, and both Old Testament and New Testament narrative are, are essentially a retelling of a history of God's people, a retelling of something that transpired, okay? We've preached through the epistles before at GLC, which are letters that were written in the first century church intended to give clear doctrinal instruction to the life of that local church and therefore all churches. We just finished reflecting on some of the psalms, which are songs of worship, which were in the liturgy of God's people. And so we've preached through various proverbs, various prophets, various poetries. Here at GLC, over the course of our almost four years together, happy anniversary November 5th, four years. We preached through all of that, and in all of these things, it's been important to understand how the author intended to be read. Because the way you read narrative in Genesis, it's different from the way you read the prophets. The way you re read the Proverbs, a collection of sayings of wisdom, it's different from the way you read Romans. Why? Because in each genre, the author is attempting to communicate in a different way, using a different method. In one, he uses poetry and symbolism. And I hear people often say, well, we need to take the Bible literally. No, you need to, we need to take the Bible the way the author meant to be taken, if that's literally wonderful. If it's poetry and symbolism, wonderful, but that's the way we read the scriptures, and this isn't new to us. It's not. We do it actually every day. When you read your newspaper, you don't read the want ads the way you read the comics. You shouldn't read op-ed or opinion pieces the way you read the front page reporting, though I realize that that's pretty much blurred beyond all distinction now. But you get the point. We function like this every day. Not some kind of new thing, but whenever we get to Revelation, we get pretty nervous, and understandably so. There's an intimidation on these pages. Christians feel like, ugh. And, and I think the main reason is because while we have somewhat similar genres related to all the other parts of the Bible, for the most part today, we have historical accounts and poetry and letters that we're all kind of used to reading. Apocalyptic literature is completely foreign to us, and yet it's crucial because here we have a message that's truly crucial. John wrote Revelation to churches facing persecution, being tempted to compromise with surrounding Roman imperial culture and to cave to societal pressures of surrounding pagan society. And John himself, in refusing to cave to those pressures, as we'll see next week, um, refusing to compromise to Roman culture, is exiled and imprisoned. And what does John do? He calls upon the churches that he's writing to to stay faithful to the end in the midst of facing this kind of evil. For all times, Jesus says, the world will give you trouble. The question that Revelation seeks to address is, what does it look like to persevere to the end and be faithful to the end in that world? So it's crucial to gain an understanding of how to read this book because the message was so crucial, and so it's a benefit to us that we actually see something of the key to reading this book right here in the first eight verses. This morning we see not just Revelation that contains a crucial message for God's people. But we actually see how to read that message so that we can come to discern what that message centrally is. That's our outline this morning, actually. One message, one central theme, one big concept in Revelation with two different very important aspects that shape how we read it. 
One is past and the other is future. One deals with events that have already occurred and one deals with events that are yet to come. So our outline this morning is the central theme, generally speaking, of all of Revelation divided into kind of two parts, two ways in which Revelation helps us with that central theme. So here it is. Revelation, so if you take notes, here's your outline, and I'll, I'll repeat this a lot so you'll have a chance to, to write it down. Revelation urges Christians to remain faithful to the end, number one, first, by addressing first century Christians about first century events. There's no way getting around that. Uh, the same way that Paul addresses first century Christians when he writes to Galatia in the first century about first century events, John is doing the same here. So... But second, Revelation urges Christians to remain faithful to the end by addressing all Christians about events yet to come. So, Revelation urges Christians to remain faithful to the end by, number one, addressing first century Christians about first century events, and number two, addressing all Christians about events yet to come. What do I mean by that? How, how does that work? Well, let's, let's just start with this central theme. My, my uh, proposition is that this is what all of Revelation is urging us to. Revelation urges Christians to remain faithful to the end. Where do we see this? Look at verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So Revelation urges Christians to remain faithful to the end. We see this in the first three verses. How do we see it? Well, first, let's ask an important question. When I say that we're urged to remain faithful, faithful to what? What exactly are Christians urged to remain faithful to? And actually, the, the question's better asked, whom? Faithful to whom? Because it's faithful to Jesus Christ. Look at the first few words there, the first phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a rev revelation of Jesus. The book of Revelation is centrally about him, and let me tell you, we together as a church will fail, will flatly fail to interpret this rightly if we do not see the centrality of Christ in all of Revelation. Now the question is, what does the author mean by the revelation of Jesus Christ? Because it could mean a couple of different things. Is this the revelation whose content is Jesus? In other words, revelation, that, that he is the revelation? Revelation all about him? Or is it the revelation that he possesses? The revelation of Jesus Christ that he possesses, that he gives from him to us, like that this is the Bible of Jeremy. This doesn't mean it's the Bible about Jeremy or Jeremy that is the Bible. It means that it's mine. I possess it. I could give it to someone, right? Is that the way that it speaks of it? Well, there are, there are some, a lot of interpreters who've argued solely for the first one, that this is only the revelation that's, that is Jesus Christ. But as we see right away in the context, it doesn't seem to fit here entirely in verse 1. Because we continue to read, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. So if this phrase is only referring to revelation that is Jesus, as opposed to revelation that belongs to him, how's he giving it to anyone? At the same time, because of that, I've actually heard 
very smart men, men smarter than myself, argue that this is solely the revelation belonging to him about future events, that he isn't himself the revelation, that the revelation is this thing that's about to happen. But we see by the end of verse 8, The entire revelation is him, that it's about him. Uh, He is the revelation. So I don't think we need to choose between the two here. I think this is his revelation. It belongs to him. He's giving it to us. It's about himself. And it's also the revelation that uh, is him. He is the revelation. This point's crucial for us because not only is this God's revelation to us that strengthens the believer to remain faithful to the end in the midst of really difficult seasons of of being pressured to compromise with the surrounding religious, religious cult of the day, but the way that it's, it strengthens us to do that, to remain faithful in the midst of it, is Jesus. It's because of him. It's because he gives us himself. He doesn't just give us this revelation that we're supposed to kind of live according to, like follow the rules and obey and you'll, you'll do okay. Obey this law and you'll do fine. Follow this advice. It's him. He is the revelation. He gives us himself. So we're urged to remain faithful to the end because we have Jesus, because we have who he is and what he's done, and and because we can see how he compares to the religious cult of the day that desires to draw us away from him. And, and, And in Revelation, we see there is no comparison. The text tells us that he made this revelation about himself known to us, which is grace in and of itself. God would reveal himself to us, right? That, that not only does a good God exist, but that he would show us who he is. He made this revelation known to us by sending his angel to the servant John. And we'll identify who that is in a minute, but the point here is just to say that Jesus is the revelation. The revelation itself bears witness, the text says, to the witness of Jesus. It testifies to the testimony of Jesus. What's the testimony of Jesus Christ? Well, that word testimony or witness is the same word as martyr or martyrship. It means one who bears witness by his life, and in particular, the way that he bears witness by his life is to die, is to lay it down. So at the center of Revelation is Jesus, one who bears witness by his life, ultimately and centrally by laying that life down. John saw this revelation, as we'll see together. He saw the revelation, who is Jesus. And in all of it, he urges Christians through this blessing. Here we go, you ready? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed, look at verse 3. Blessed are those who hear and who keep. They keep what's written in it. They're faithful to it. They persevere in it. There's this uh, repetitive theme throughout Revelation of keeping. Not just hearing, but keeping and holding fast and persevering. For the time is near. There There are actually seven statements of blessing in Revelation. This is the first one. As we'll see throughout Revelation, as is the case in first century apocalyptic literature, numbers are often symbolic, especially seven, as you see just in the first chapter, uh, and it'll just compile onward. But here this number seven means something of completeness. Right? And so here we have something of, by, by having seven blessings throughout Revelation, we see something of an assurance to the Christian, of the completeness of blessing offered in Jesus, that it truly is finished, finished, that that the one who hears and believes and takes seriously these words will be blessed. If you remember what Justin said about 
what it means to be blessed just last week in the Psalms and what we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is, is another way of saying in right standing before the Lord. Made right before God, right? Those who hear don't simply hear, but rather believe, even when they're difficult to hear, even when they're difficult to believe, and even when we don't want to believe, so that by receiving and believing this gospel, they're actually made right because they're receiving a message that says they need to be made right. And in this case, the first blessing is seen as urgent. Keep it. Don't disregard it. Don't let it go. Don't abandon it. Keep it. For the time is near. Now that phrase, phrases like this in Revelation, right? The time is near. It's confusing. It can confuse us in Revelation because here you have these churches in the first century. They hear the words of John. The time is near. He tells us in verse 1, these things are going to happen soon, you know? And uh, how do we deal with those phrases? Because there's a sense in which it's like, these things happened yet? I, how, do we, how do we make sense? There are those who say John had an over-realized eschatology. In other words, he was a little out over, over and ahead of his skis. You know, he, he um, was saying this, but he was, he was wrong. You know, he expected Jesus to come sooner than he actually did, and John was just writing the, the best that he knew. But I don't think that's the case, actually, at all. The text will answer that question as we continue on. But for now, for this morning... We'll just note that the entire purpose here is to urge believers in light of this revelation, in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he's done, and in light of what he will do. That we must hear it and keep it. We must remain faithful to this gospel to the very end. Keep it. So that's the main point, and we'll see it repeated as we go. Revelation urges Christians to remain faithful to Jesus Christ, the way he's revealed himself to us, to the, to the very end. And now two aspects of that main point that help us understand revelation and therefore help us do the very thing that it calls us to do as Christians. Revelation urges Christians to remain faithful to the end, number one, by addressing first century Christians about first century events. Look with me, set your eyes on verses four through seven. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Okay, so stop there for a minute. While Revelation is primarily in the genre of apocalyptic literature, you know, that first century hearers would have understood far more than, than we do, would have been familiar with in terms of both the symbolisms um, and, and a lot of the language and the style. While that's true, it's also written as a letter. We see features of a letter. It's not an epistle or letter in the classic sense because the way it seeks to teach and instruct isn't in this, like, you can tell right away. It's not a straightforward exposition of doctrine, you know. Uh, it's, it's apocalyptic revelation. But it's still a letter, you know. It's addressed... The reality is that it opens this way, from an author, John, to specific churches that will be addressed in the weeks ahead. And that's pretty indisputable evidence, you guys, that this was meant to be read aloud in public worship. Not just at these seven churches, but at all of the churches of Asia as they would receive this letter. You know, if you read Galatians, 
And Paul's introduction, or any of Paul's letters, and Paul's introductions, and you read Revelation and John's introduction, you will see some pretty standard introductions to a letter. There's an author that's noted, identification of the author. In this case, it's the Apostle John, the disciple of Jesus, the author of the Gospel according to John, and the first three letters of John in the New Testament. There are some who say that that's not the case, that this was like an unknown author in the first century that is writing, you know, under the pseudonym of John. There are others who claim that this is actually a different character in church history known as John the Elder. Um, I, I find them unconvincing. And if you wonder why, you can ask me at the Q&A because we don't have time for it here. That's why we have Q&A. So I can not have to go into all those things. But, you know, if, you, if you're wondering, come and ask. For now, we can just note here we have the Apostle John, and he addresses it. So we have the, the author. We also have those who he, he addresses it to, the seven churches that are in Asia. And while there, you know, there are seven specific churches listed here that he addresses, seven is also likely a s- symbolically chosen. He chooses these seven. He chooses seven in particular as a representation from within Apocalyptic literature of the complete church. This is for everyone. It's for all churches, universally. At the same time, there's a time and a location that are in Asia. You know, it demonstrates a specific location, a specific uh, date, a specific place where this is being written. And in this specific uh, time period, churches are really challenged with something uniquely. In this occasion. What's the occasion? Well, most likely, I would argue that this text was written in the 90s AD. There, there are a minority of scholars, and it is a pretty small minority, who argue for the late, a date in the late 60s, mid to late 60s AD. But for at least three reasons, I prefer, and I think it's probably right, the later date, there can be no certainty here, but the later date in 90s AD the majority view is probably correct. And again, if you wonder why, you come to the Q&A. All right. Um, if, you, if, you, if you've heard it taught otherwise, or if you believe otherwise and you want to push back, Q&A is a perfect place to ask your questions. But what this means is that this is being written under the reign of Emperor Domitian rather than Nero in the 60s AD. And while it's true that Nero is a dark and looming character over Christians in the first century, and while I also think it's true very much that John is talking about Nero, Specifically in Revelation in ways that would have been obvious to his hearers. And we'll see that as we preach through it. Here under Domitian's rule, the pressure for emperor worship was greatly increased for Christians. Christians were reported to the authorities by neighbors for failing to comply with the culture's view. That's the reality of the time. The Roman cult had established that if someone did not come into line with their views on religion was held by surrounding Roman culture, they were to at the very least be seen as unfit citizens of Rome. Extremists and zealots, narrow-minded, dangerous, ostracized, kept at arm's length. And John is communicating here that such persecution that they're experiencing will only increase even to the point of death, which Christians have already experienced in Rome up to this point. And these specific believers in the first century are called to be faithful, faithful to the end. He tells them in the midst of it, okay, in the, midst of, in the midst of that situation, in the midst of that circumstance, which I think we hear in the West, and it's like scare, maybe scary, uncomfortable. 
comes to it for them and he says, and he says, grace and peace to you. The word of God to them is grace to them in the same way that we see in the letters of Paul. Paul begins and ends his letters this way as well. Where does the grace ultimately come from? Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Grace to you and peace. Just as an aside, where, where uniquely do Christians hear this grace and peace proclaimed of the word of God? Where do Christians hear the proclamation of revelation that we might believe and, and be urged together continually to keep it? In the life of the local church where this letter would have been read and where they would have proclaimed grace and peace to you. So one way that we can do that is heading into this fall, do not neglect to meet together. That's, a, that's absolutely an application of this text. Paul writes, or John writes, he says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and who's freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so this grace is extended to these persecuted believers from God. There's no other place where someone might find grace. Some people take this structure here to be a reference to the Trinity. Smart people like Tom Schreiner, who's commentary I use. I'm going to provide a reading list, by the way, for you guys in the, in the next couple of weeks, just so that you can kind of see and dig into some things on your own. But Tom Schreiner's real smart. He says, this is likely the Trinity, right? So the Father being him who is and who was and who is to come, echoing back to Exodus. The seven spirits being a reference to the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, is obviously the Son. And I think that's very possible. I'm not sure. There's, there's a, another very, I think, legitimate interpretation that these seven spirits are actually, it's a sign of Jesus' authority, seven angelic beings. Uh, I've kind of gone back and forth on that in the years behind me. But either way, uh, for the, our purposes, we'll simply say, in the midst of this intensity of persecution, it's God himself who comes by his authority to grant these first century Christians the grace they need. To follow and to obey. He's a good God who gives grace to these first century Christians. In the midst of rising persecution, they have the risen Jesus. He is actually, the text tells us here, if you look, the king over any king that might threaten these believers. You think Domitian has power? He's the, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. You can't kill him. He's God, risen. He's king. He's ruler over all kings on earth. Domitian has no authority. And he loves you, he says. That king who's king over all of those kings, who has authority over any ruler, he loves you. And the ultimate expression of that love is that he freed them by his blood on the cross from that kingdom of Domitian, from that kingdom of the world that enslaves them, into now a new kingdom. Bought by his blood, counter to culture, in which all of us are actually priests. Even as we interact in the culture around us, which as we'll see in the weeks ahead, is significant for first century Christians. 
as it is today. So we'll come back to the rest of verses 5 and 6 at the end again. But here we see the original author writing to an original audience. And that's important for us. I think maybe the biggest downside related to how modern Christians sometimes attempt to understand Revelation. And I don't mean these comments to be divisive. I mean, I mean them to be pastoral and to just challenge us to think about it differently. All right, sometimes. Okay, so I think the biggest, the biggest downside related to how we have sometimes opened and attempted to understand Revelation is that the particular historical setting gets ignored. And I want to caution us against that. There are many who read Revelation as though it's almost entirely future. As though somehow these seven churches along with countless others in Asia during the first century who would have heard this read in public worship? They would, have, they would have had this read, but the vast majority of it is about something that would happen thousands of years in the future. The reality is that there are just too many passages in Revelation, Revelation that, that, were, that absolutely would have been read and completely understood by first century Christians who are absolutely familiar with the apocalyptic literature that they were hearing. And they would have heard them as being a reference to events in their time, first century events. See, I think the big hurdle to that way of thinking for us, the one that makes it, I think, really hard to break through, is just that we're so far removed from that first century and we're so far removed from this genre. F.F. Bruce tells this great story of a young man at a university in the United Kingdom giving out free copies of the New Testament. And I think this, this helps make the point giving free copies of the New Testament at a local college in the UK. So he had a college ministry. He'd drive to this uh, university in the United Kingdom. And he'd hand out these New Testaments. The only condition that he made to students was that he, promi- he made them promise, you've got to read this if you're going to take one. One particular student who'd never picked up a Bible in his life and had no experience ever attending a, a local church was genuinely curious. So he agreed to the stipulation, said he would read it. The student then ran into this young man again uh, two weeks later, and the young man asked, hey, did you read? Do you have a chance to read it yet? The student said, yeah, I, I had actually. And I have actually. And the young man immediately said, well, what did you think? And the student replied, yeah, you know, I found it a little repetitive in the beginning, the same story being told four times, but I really enjoyed that bit of science fiction at the end. And I, see, I'm not mocking him. I understand that. <laughs> you know, like, I, understand, I think maybe that's the closest category that in our time we can think of when it comes to apocalyptic literature. But quite a few scholars are quick to point out that for any Christian living in the Roman Empire, there would have been zero question about the identity, for instance, of the great whore sitting on the seven hills. We'll get there. They would have known precisely where John was referring to by the seven hills and exactly to whom he was referring as the great whore. There wouldn't have been a question. Anyone actually in Europe didn't even have to have a biblical background. Reading that during the first century would have known what John is referring to. So to somehow argue that most first century readers would have misunderstood what John was saying and that only now in about 1830 and following we've discovered what what it really meant, I think is to our detriment. It's to our detriment. John would have had to have been knowingly writing something that most people would have understood a certain way, but not actually meaning that. And again, that almost entirely future way of understanding Revelation, you know, it's, it's actually pretty common among evangelicals today. It's, it's kind of common, and yet you can't really find it in church history until about 1830. 
That is the reality. So there are major problems here when we essentially dehistoricize the book of Revelation. We take it out of its historical context. I, I want to argue that a lot of what we're going to be reading in the weeks ahead is referring to events that already took place. Okay? One of my professors at my alma mater at Trinity concludes this way in his lectures on Revelation. I think he's correct. He says, the book of Revelation has to be interpreted in the first instance. First way we read it. It has to be interpreted in the first instance against the historical background of the first century. The genre absolutely demands it. It is absolutely true. This is something we'll have to remember as we read through it and listen. It doesn't, it doesn't rob the modern Christian of anything. It doesn't rob the modern Christian of anything. Those who put forward an interpretation of Revelation like the one I'm going to, by saying that a lot of what we're about to read already happened and transpired in the first century, it's, uh, sometimes I've heard them attacked uh, on like radio programs, even here in Minnesota, and, and it worries me because it doesn't rob you. Taking this book in its first century context only gives you more ground on which to stand as you come to see and believe what Christ has done. So I ask for an open mind there. Rather than mostly removing it from its first century context in order to read a kind of newspaper eschatology where I'm seeing very specific fulfillments of Revelation all over modern events, I want to suggest that the believer is actually called to a biblical eschatology in which we seek to understand the scriptures as the original audience would have heard them in the midst of great persecution, urging them, and it has, it has so much to say, the original author to the original audience in that sense, has so much to say related to how to be faithful in the midst of persecution. Right? It's honoring to those first century Christians to read it this way, and it's for our good. It's a book telling you how to face opposition. John 2, the 7 churches. Revelation urges Christians to remain faithful to the end, number one, by addressing first century Christians about first century events. And yet as we see, there's also another mistake we can make, and it's a major one. If we try to claim that everything that happened in Revelation is entirely past, there are many who actually try to claim, not really from within evangelicalism, but there are Christians who, who try to claim that all of it's simply symbolic or grounded in historical events. It's about, it's about things that already happened, and that there's no future aspect to Revelation. Right? Now, the strength of some of that interpretation is they actually get a lot right as they go through and they identify first century things. And yet at the same time, as we see right here in the introduction, it completely misses that Revelation urges Christians to remain faithful to the end by addressing all Christians about events yet to come that are significant. Listen to this. Listen. Behold, verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. Here we see this first section ending with something of a hymn. Stating that, yes, Jesus is here. He's present in the midst of present persecution for his people. He was present in the first century. Why, did, why does he... Why does John put it this way for first century Christians? Why does he say that God is the one who is 
and who was and who is to come. Isn't that a bit disjointed? Why doesn't he more chronologically say he was and he is and he is to come? And why? Well, because he wants to make the point that he wants to stress primarily that Jesus is God now in the midst of your persecution. So there is that strong sense of God being with Christians in the first century, but there's also, we cannot ignore, he's coming again. He's the one who is to come. While there are many who I think wrongly see Revelation in places where it was never intended to be applied, I really think that's the case. There are also many evangelical Christians today that never think about the end times at all, actually, from within evangelicalism. They never think about Christ's coming. They're so comfortable in this world, and they desire to be so comfortable in this world, that they don't really believe that this world, as it is, is simply not their home. And I also think, and I'll, I'll speak from experience, I, I think there's part of us that's wired not to think about the end in, the, in these terms, right? To think about Christ's coming, because it, maybe for some people it sounds kind of like, for even a lot of Christians, it sounds kind of wild. Jesus is returning on the clouds. It's like, this isn't the kind of thing I want to tell my non-believing friends because they're going to think I'm crazy. And yet, it's crucial for us. It's so important for us. We don't think about the fact that we think that this world is our home. We don't want to believe that this world as it is is simply not our home. That Jesus is our home and that He's coming back again to, to make this our home because he'll be here, that, that he's coming with the clouds. There are many who want to claim that people shouldn't care so much about life after death. We've talked about this before, that what they really should care about is what Christians should care about and talk about is life right now, not life after death. Well, we can say, I don't think that's, of course, the scriptures tell us Jesus offers you life right now. Of course, that's the case. But the primary stress in Revelation, and I would say all of Scripture, is an orientation toward the end. You have a future hope of salvation. You have a future hope of complete redemption. You have a future hope of world restoration. You have a future hope of vindication. Coming in the clouds is coming in judgment. Coming in the clouds is coming to restore and redeem. And that future hope Behold, he's coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, and nobody will be exempt. Those who pierced him, nobody will be exempt from the consequences of his coming, that the nations who've rejected him will wail at his account, that he's coming to hold us to account. He's coming to vindicate the believer in the end. All of that future hope actually changes the way you live your life right now. It's crucial for the believer. Read in the context of the Old Testament and the way that scriptures have been understood and interpreted by the earliest Christians down throughout the ages, it's simply impossible to remove the future aspect of Revelation. And in doing so, I would say we're kind of cutting off the branch we're all sitting on. You know, if, if we do that. It's cutting out something that's central to the heart of the Christian life. It cuts off one of the greatest motivators toward Christ-like living and energetic mission that the Church of Christ possesses. So wait, Jeremy, you're saying, make sure I'm hearing you right. Revelation urges Christians to remain faithful to the end by addressing first century Christians about first century events. And Revelation urges Christians to remain faithful to the end by addressing all Christians about events yet to come. 
both? Yes. Because, as we come to see, as we come to see these events that are understood by a first century audience, much of which transpired already in the first century, a lot of what we'll read already referring to what already happened. In those events, we, we see something of a prefigurement or announcement of a for future foretaste or reality. So just like we saw throughout Genesis, and not just like, because this is apocalyptic, but here's an example. So in Genesis, right, we had these moments where it's like Jacob sees this vision of this ziggurat in Bethel where God, uh, he cannot climb to, to be with God, but God has to descend to be with him. And in that, we see this picture of Christ. It's a prefigurement. It's it's pointing us forward to what is to come. We see that throughout Genesis. Point, it's yes, that that event happened, and at that point, but yet it points us forward to something that is to come. We see something similar happened here. Yes, these events happen, and yet these events are also shadows of that which is still to come, a future reality. There are specific ways that a first century reader would have understand its meaning, but that meaning points forward to future events of things yet to come. There's a tension between the already and the not yet in Revelation. Sometimes that tension is really hard to understand. And there's a lot of uncertainties with some of that tension. It's okay. And I certainly don't have all the answers, as you will find out in the Q&A. But I think we handle scripture with the most care when we hold to both realities, when we don't neglect one or the other. First century readers, first century events, all readers, events yet to come. Events now. Okay. So, as D.A. Carson says, bring us home, D.A., he says, the book of Revelation prepares first generation Christians for first-generation assaults, but in categories and terms that prepares later Christians for other assaults and ultimately for the final assault. I think this is right. I, listen, how did the book of Revelation prepare first-century Christians for first-century assaults? How does the book of Revelation prepare us, later-generation Christians, for later assaults and therefore the ultimate assault by pointing to Jesus? Verse 5 again, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Later in Revelation, we'll read together that either you have the mark of God or you have the mark of the beast. Like I said, it's characteristic in Revelation. It's pretty black and white. Not a lot of gray area here. You're either in or you're out. You're a believer or you're not. You hold fast or you abandon. These are the kind of categories we're going to see. Okay, We need to be prepared for that. You have to be on one side or the other. There's no fence riding in Revelation, folks. It's just not here. But how do you do that, you know? How? How do you make that kind of choice in the face of opposition, in the face of societal pressure? How is one prepared down to lay down his own life for the sake of Christ? See, here's a book telling you how to face that kind of opposition in those kinds of ways to that kind of degree. 
And it does that, not with some kind of an aloof God that says, come on, guys, why won't you suffer for me? You know, like, it's not, it's not like some aloof God in heaven who's like, I'd, I really wish you guys would all be willing to die for me. I mean, if you really loved me. We serve a God, according to Revelation, who faced that opposition first. Who bore witness first and who did that by his death first. Later in Revelation, we see those who overcome the dragon do so by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they do not love their lives even unto death. We read that, and if we're not going to say it out loud, we'll say it to ourselves. How is that possible? That's hard. Not to love my own life even unto death? How does one find that kind of strength? There are areas of the world, the world that we live in right now, present day, in which Christians are rounded up, beaten, imprisoned, tortured, and killed routinely for being Christian, for holding to the truth of the scriptures. And they demonstrate in this to the world that they do not love their lives even unto death. In the Western world, we think, how's that possible when I do not even love my life oftentimes even unto the loss of popularity, even unto, unto the loss of being seen as normal? How do, you love, how do you not love your life even unto death? But throughout the book and right here in the front end, we see the means for that. It's for believers to understand that here we have Jesus who did not love his life even unto death. And who did that first? He didn't expect you to do it first. He did it first that you might do it. That you might triumph. That you might have glory. That you might have him as inheritance and that you might have ultimate inheritance. We come to the table together each week. We have bread and we have the wine, the juice, just juice this morning. And we do this weekly because in this, we proclaim this reality to one another. Jesus did not love his life even unto death, that we might have life in him. 